You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. And a portfolio is the, the best representation visually you can put on the things that you've been part of. But the interesting conversation is your role in that. If you define yourselves by the output, you, you belittle the journey that you go on, you belittle the, the skills you have in, in building alignment, in, in identifying the unseen. Some thoughts there on what it means to represent your skills as a designer from Warren Hutchison, founder of the London-based agency ELSE, and my guest on today's show. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of MEX. It's great to be back with another edition of our MEX podcast for you. I'm going to tell you all about Warren and ELSE in a moment, but I also want to say sorry. Uh, it's been a little while since I put out one of these podcasts, a little bit longer than I would have liked, uh, but it's just been a particularly busy time with giving various talks in, thankfully, some parts of the world which are a little bit warmer than the chilly old UK. Uh, still seems unable to shift into this springtime gear for real. So let's get you up to speed on what's been happening in the MEX community since we did have that last show. We had another gathering of our dining club in London. That was back in the middle of March. And the theme for this one was UI innovation, user interface innovation. Great evening, a lovely mix of familiar faces and some new folks who are joining us for the first time. Uh, and some great conversations about some of the things which might prompt the industry to be, well, just a bit braver in experimenting with user interfaces that go beyond those familiar old metaphors of icon grids and pages that we really seem to have been using now for decades. I mean, there's got to be something new out there, right? Maybe answers on a postcard if you have any bits of UI inspiration you would like to share. So I should also tell you about the next dinner, now, this is happening on Wednesday, the 25th of April in London again, but we're going to be at a new venue in Southwark, which, weather permitting, might give us a rather nice garden setting for the evening. Now, don't worry, it's got indoor seating too, but assuming we do actually get something resembling a springtime this year, we might be able to do the whole open air thing. Uh, it's Turkish Anatolian cuisine, uh, and as always, there will be 12 seats at the table to keep it to intimate and meaningful discussions. And the discussion theme this time around is interdisciplinary inspiration. So we're trying to think about those moments when something outside your day-to-day helps you see design problems in a new light. Now, there are no formal talks or presentations. It's not really the vibe for these dinners, but hopefully those coming along will have a bit of a chance to think about that theme and maybe get around to sharing some of the techniques that we all use to keep plugged into those sources for tangential inspiration. Now, if you'd like to come along to this next one on the 25th of April, uh, or get on the invite list for future dinners, just drop me a line by email. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com, and I'll make sure I keep you updated. Now, the other thing I wanted to tell you about before we get into the interview with Warren was Mech's Jobs. Now, this is where companies who share the user-centered design values of the Mech's community can post roles and we share them through the various MEX channels like this podcast on our jobs board and our email newsletter, our social channels. And there's some great stuff out there in movement. 
including actually a senior experience architect role at Warren's own firm, which is based at their rather picturesque Riverside studio in London, down in Wapping. Uh, we've got others with Saga Group in Folkestone. They're looking for a, a UX researcher. Scotland's Care Inspectorate also looking for a, a UX researcher. So if you're hiring or if you're looking, do go and take a look at the site. You can find it all at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. Okay, so Warren Hutchison. Warren and I met, I think, through a mutual connection at Brunel University, and we've both been visiting lecturers there. And I think we quickly realized we both have quite a shared interest in one of those big thorny problems facing the design industry. This ongoing development of skills and the kind of healthy cultures in which you can nurture talent. So we talk quite a bit about that and get deep into what it's meant for Warren to graduate from Brunel himself in the mid-90s, you know, work client-side during the first dot-com boom, spend time at well-known agencies like LBI, and then go on to found his own shop and all the trials and tribulations associated with doing that, with being a design agency founder. And it's an interesting moment to be having these conversations with someone who is outspokenly committed to being an independent agency at a time when you know, big professional services firms are continuing to buy up smaller experience-led design agencies like this. We get into some of that. And also, it turns out we talk a bit about why sitting down for a cup of tea with a rolling stone is sometimes just the thing you need to get started in the world of digital experience design. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. Warren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me on the show today. No worries. Thank you for having me. So it's seven, nearly eight years ago now, I think, since you founded your agency else in, in London. But I'm wondering if there was a sense before the actual date of founding it that that was something you felt compelled to do, that you wanted to create an agency of your own, having had experience of working you know, in-house, working at other agencies. Was there a time predating the actual founding of, of else as a business where you started to get the sense that it, it was something you needed to do for yourself? Yes, yes and no. I mean, I, I didn't, um, there wasn't like a moment where I woke up in the middle of the night thinking I must, I must do this or sitting down with my, my wife kind of planning what our next move was going to be work-wise. Um, it wasn't considered that way. I think it was a, uh, always a sort of flea in my ear that I needed to try doing something for myself. And my career had started, um, client side at, at Yell was Yellow Pages back then. And I've, I've worked in management consulting environments and various types of consultancy and agency. And um, I'd experienced some really great places to work, great cultures where you, didn't, you never really felt like you went to work. Um, I think that just the time came when I left Universal Music um, just seemed right to deal with that flea in my ear and just have a go and see see what would happen. So um I said to my wife, Camilla, you know, let's, let's give it three months, six months, see how we go. And um, here we are eight years later on. And you kind of look back after a period and think, how did 
that happen. <laughs> you know, it's just it's occurred um, without any sort of real plan at the start. But um, I, th- I think it was something I always wanted to do um, because I wanted to recreate some of those best moments of my my career. Um, I missed some of the environments that I worked in. So um, I think it was really timing and I had an attitude that I would have been bothered if I didn't do it at some stage. Um, it would have been work left undone. Well, as you say, often I think these things are as much a result of happy accident as, as anything else. But I mean, did you have a sense of certain sort of principles or an approach to work, even if you didn't imagine it as a sort of fully formed company, were there certain things that you wanted to bring from those experiences you had had client side in different types of consultancy that you sort of knew were going to be hallmarks of the business? Yeah, I mean, uh, unquestionably, um, kind of understood what our DNA was the the day we started. Um, And uh, the first couple of people that joined us full time, um, one of the things I was really keen to have in place was a uh, what HR people call a class leading benefits package and set up because um, wanted to create the right environment for people to do their best work and one of the ways you have to go at that is to is to make the sort of professional wrapper the the package wrapper around it as competitive as, as it can be um, because of what you're competing against. Why go and work for a new small unknown? design business um when there are the sort of uh there's the allure of the the larger larger agencies so you have to tick those boxes early on but in but in terms of the work always wanted to do um work that had a strategic impact um on a business or group of people um with the output that you created and when we started um we expected to do a few i guess bread and butter kind of website app style projects um where a client would come to you with a form brief and say you know could you make us one of those um but very quickly we found ourselves in the territory of working on problems that were as yet undefined um which is a space we continue to operate in so um we work upstream of the formal brief um and to do that you need a certain type of culture you need certain people you need a set of consulting skills and um, it was surprising how how quickly we found ourselves, you know, developing a um, digital-only bank in in Russia, for example, working on Accenture's um, uh, visual design toolkit across twenty-seven different marketing analytics applications. Um, we did do those web projects, um, and and we still do them today. They're they're they're, they're good projects to do. Um, but uh, the intent was always to. Um, be at the top table, really, with the, the the effect, the impact that good design can have on a business. So what do you credit that to? Because I think that's something which a lot of design agencies can aspire to, you know, for literally the life of the business and never feel that they quite manage to get to that upstream point that you're describing there. I mean, was that a result of you know, the experiences that you were able to bring from having had some exposure to management consulting? Does it come from having a certain set of personalities on board in that initial you know, founding team as you were building the business? Because it's, you know, it's something which a lot of businesses, a lot of agencies aspire to, but, but never actually manage. Hmm. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. I mean, there's an element of post-rationalization about it, but um, I think back to uh, my first my first job. Really, I I studied um, product design at, at Brunel. Um, I graduated in in '98, really long time ago now. Um, 
and I graduated at a time when digital was really kicking off, just starting up really. Um, although I'd been sort of building websites when I was doing my A-levels. Um, so while I was studying product design and I was doing a BSc in product design, um, I was spending a lot of time in the computer lab, uh, just just playing, um, building things, um, and, and was in awe of you know being able to connect to the other side of the world and, and chat. Um, so, let's put it in context a bit here, maybe for some of our younger listeners, because you know this is a similar sort of vintage to my own exposure to web design and that sort of stuff around the, the mid nineties, and. I'm curious, you know, what are the, what were your sort of touchstone tools at that point, you know, when you were building those initial things in your spare time while doing the, the BSc in product design? You know, what sort of tools were you using? Um, so back then, I mean, it was Mosaic was the browser. Um, and we used to connect using um, chat rooms, using TCP IP, I think it was a Telnet window, uh, things like Resort and Foothills. Um, and the, the, the computers were Sun Microsystems, um, the things we used to use for 3D rendering and modeling, um, modeling pressure vessels, that kind of thing. Um, we used to code in, in TextPad. Um, you know, you didn't have, didn't even have, and this is HTML3, I think, or two even, so we didn't, we didn't have tables. So layout was very, um, very linear. Um, and it was, it was, it was more about trying to, um, create connections and trying to create content i suppose at the time um and just get it working um you, you'd look over at a friend and see them you know they've got a horizontal rule with flames on it or something like that <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding um but you'd see all that all that stuff and you just want to understand how it worked uh, and would find something that did it you'd unpick the source code um and then you'd get it working yourself um and uh, that always just intrigued me and, and it was you know definitely from product design routes are trying to understand how things work and why I was attracted to Brunellis, of course, that sort of Bauhaus theory that, that flows through that course. But when I went to Yale, uh, my first sort of digital job in 1998, I think it was, um, the then design studio was mostly staffed by people who'd used to work in the um, the directories artwork studio. So people who were trained classically in graphic design, um, designing digital products. And um I got a job there and thought about the use of Yell, which was then yell.co.uk. It was a business search engine um, as a product. So I'd think about in terms of usability um, and ergonomics because that's what had been my training. Um, and this wasn't the vernacular of the discipline at the time. Um, usability and user experience weren't really phrases that were understood. Um, so an attitude I had was, well, this isn't about what it looks like. It's about how it works and how it serves those that it's supposed to work for. So we need to understand them, their context, all the stuff I've been taught. Um, and I don't think personally I've ever been shy to question why we're doing something and um, what does doing something good look like and how does that impact a business. And you kind of stand out, I think, in certainly in those early days when you're asking those questions. Um, so this sort of journey of making design or using design as a strategic imperative, a tool that helps answer business problems. I think it's always been part of part of my DNA and my approach and all the people I've worked with um, who I respect and love working with have a similar philosophy. And I think people like that gravitate to each other and um, you work with intent 
the way you want to work, I suppose. So in some respects, I could reflect and say it's a surprise we got into the work that we got into as soon as we did. Uh, in the other, in other respects, you could say it's uh, um, it'd been in the making for the previous sort of 10, 15 years of my career. So, so was that something as a skill set that was explicit in the course that you did at, at Brunel University, that idea of yeah, not being afraid to question not being afraid to look at the wider business problem which was being solved? Um, or was that something which was more implicit in the, the other parts of the education you had that Brunel course? Um, I think it was, I think it was, um, it was, it was both implicit and explicit. There was a, there was a, there was a module, um, trying to, what was it called? Um, uh, DICWA, Design in the Commercial World. And while we were learning model making and hardcore electrical engineering and maths and mechanics and design history we were we were studying design in the commercial world um so you know this is this is quite unique i think um a couple of things that are unique about that particular course at that time one you were learning that broad range it was very frustrating actually to come out of a level design where i where i'd studied maths and design um uh people had done art and physics to go to a course where you basically were reset and we were doing you know maths lectures and like i said um, mechanics physics in the first year so they were they were reschooling everybody um much akin to the sort of bauhaus philosophy of the journeyman you know you recalibrate your skill set understand everything that goes into what you're about to do rather than to start with just the the design um part on its own so design in the commercial world was a very interesting subject because it it felt like a competitive advantage that you were being taught design in the context of business um so that was one thing that was unique the other thing that was unique i think was the um running meets um as a campus which is in egham in surrey um is where the design faculty used to be and for four years the length of the course all students were on campus so when you arrive as a first year you would share a corridor with fourth years and you would see what they're going through and crucially as their um, projects their major projects and other projects kind of went near deadlines they would recruit your help so you would see the model making you'd see the standard um, and that competitiveness really built up you know um call it competitiveness in one way um you could look at it as learning in another you know you'd walk out of your room having finished you know doing some work go and see a friend see what they've done see the bar's been moved then you'd go back and do more and and that was sort of implicit across the whole course it was um quite relentless in that regard and that's um, something which i understand has now changed a bit because when you were there it, it was that dedicated campus for the design school where you were all yeah. sort of in a residential setting together but as i understand now that that building is no longer in, in existence yeah it's a real shame i mean you'll always have the old guard saying it's not like it was in my day but i think to have your formative years in in your design education and as an adult sat amongst you know um some very very talented undergraduates and postgraduates and you're just living and breathing it 24 7 for four years you, you can't help but you know be deeply um affected by that positive and negative i think it broke quite a few people you know turn their back on the career because it's, it was absolutely relentless it, it was a fantastic thing to offer um i think the course still produces fantastic students um but it's a completely different animal now because it, it they couldn't support 
the campus um, any longer. I think it was costing them just a fortune. So um, they moved everything over to Uxbridge and you, you lose that connective tissue and the creative culture. And I think, you know, that's certainly that idea of being in amongst your peers and the, the idea of design as a team sport is something I've carried with me forever. It's had a you know very profound effect on how how I work um, and and how I align myself to to people um, whose whose uh, whose work ethic. Actually, it's not work ethic. It's more thirst for learning. You know, learning is a competitive advantage. I want to understand this. I don't know how it works. So I need to learn. Um, it, it, it was sort of forged there, really. So um, I think it's different now. Um, I think it's uh, they still produce good grads, but. You know, it, was a, it feels like a real privilege to, to have been able to go there during that time. Yeah, it, it's interesting the characteristics which different educational paths give to, to designers. I mean, I've had the experience of working with Brunel in a few different ways now over mm. possibly about a, a decade or so. We've had, uh, could be as many as 100 plus now, Brunel graduates come through the, the scholarship program, which we have run in conjunction with the MEX conference, where they come along mm. and participate alongside our facilitators and help um, you know, different groups that are working on different design problems to, to work through those. And, you know, it's something which um, I guess one of the, the things which really encouraged me to build that link over the years was that sense that as a university, they seem to have a real awareness of the importance of people getting out and working together in teams in the commercial world as an integral part of the design learning experience. And, you know, maybe that leads to a certain set of characteristics, which makes for sort of an identifiable uh, Brunel person that has, has come out of that sort of path and is equipped with a certain set of skills to then be a good design team player in the future, which I'm guessing for you, you know, now as uh, an employer building an agency, you must become quite finely attuned to when you're looking at people who are coming out as graduates, you know, what sort of characteristics they've been left with by those courses and whether or not that's going to fit with with your culture uh, as an agency, uh, as a growing business. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, I think that's definitely true. There's a, there's a, there's a character type um, associated with all the different educational establishments. Um, you know, uh, there is no right or wrong. I don't. I don't believe we, we've got people from from many different design schools, wildly different sort of attitudes. I think the thing that unites the people we're interested in is the, um, I guess the the endeavour of of design, the pursuit of your your passion. Um, uh, I, I, I say this relatively um, frequently, but I, I trip over how I want to say it as I'm already doing. I think there are two two types of design. I think there are those that um, see it as a really enjoyable career and a you know they're interested in it and they they, they arm themselves well to, to to make a good job of it. And then there are those that are just intrinsically motivated by um, understanding how people are, what they do. Um, and, and how they work. So if you're if you're working on, for example, say a, a new mobile payments service, um, people can do a good job of that. Um, and then there are people who will just they'll live and breathe it the whole time they're working on it. They'll just be observing out for dinner with family, and they'll just be looking at you know the the, the exchanges that are happening between people as they're paying for their meals. Um, they're the kinds of people I'm personally gra- I gravitate to. Um, this sort of intrinsic interest um 
in in what you do. Um, when we're looking for people to join the team, um, it's quite interesting. I think the way in which the community sort of represents itself through portfolio and CV is incredibly archaic because it's this sort of um, it's a painting of your career. And a portfolio is the, the best representation visually you can put on the things that you've been part of. But the interesting conversation is your role in that. If you define yourselves by the output, you, you belittle the journey that you go on. You belittle the, the skills you have in, in building alignment, in, in identifying the unseen. Yet as, a, as an industry, we, we kind of hold these artifacts up and say, hey, look what I made, which I think is very limiting for us as an industry. You, you, you need to find ways to um to show what your character and your tenacity and your skill uh, add to a team and that's not really easily represented on linkedin or a piece of paper or or even in a portfolio that, that is a real challenge i think and one that yeah you know, lots of, of agencies and increasingly now uh, in-house teams as they're that they're growing and expanding are facing i mean are there particular techniques that you look to to be able to dig under the surface of a portfolio and get to those deeper stories and get to that deeper understanding of you know what those characteristics are and what the the roles have been and what that whether there is that attitude of mind to genuinely have a sense of of ongoing inquiry into the, the process of design above and beyond just being able to make you know pretty shiny things yeah yeah i mean there's there's the uh, you know people come uh, if you look at sort of standard uh, particularly applications for more junior roles standard cv will say you know i have proficient skill set in and they'll list out software um that's kind of like being able to explain you can use a pen and paper i mean they're, they're just they're just tools any anyone's interested in um your your creativity and your intelligence so if you're intelligent you can learn you can learn your way around the obstacles you face, whether they're areas unknown or new technologies. You need to understand the application of that knowledge to the problem space is is your creativity. And your your drive and tenacity through that is powered by your passion. So we're trying to get to a conversation where those things can be exposed. And there's all kinds of HR tricks, aren't there? You know, one of my favorite opening questions is, you know, so what do you think of our work? And it's a classic one. Um and people can prepare for it, but what they can't prepare for is having an authentic conversation about it. Um, what do you think of our work? Because that's going to expose not only have you um, prepared, do you know what you're applying for? And that's the key bit. You could sit there in front of me and you could say, well, I thought the work you did for Kodak was really good and this, this, this and this and recite it. Um, but you've got to have some critical judgment. There'll be a conversation there. There'll be some discourse as to why you think it's good or bad or what could have been achieved that question opens up that whole thing. And if someone hasn't prepared, then, you know, you're looking for, you're looking to end, end uh, as quickly as possible because they haven't demonstrated the basic passion. You've got to want to be there. Um, I think, you know, for, for one, and we, we say to people when they come in for interview, this isn't an interview. This is a first conversation and we expect it to be two way and we expect you to interview us. So, you know, bring, bring all your curiosity about what we're doing and how we're doing it. So the sort of machinations of job application and advertising um, frustrate me um, a, a fair bit. And, and we still participate in some of these. You know, we post up job, job adverts like, like most people. But you're trying to find someone's, uh, <laughs> I'm going to sound um, stupid, but you, you're trying to find someone's heart and soul for what they do, what drives them. Um, because I think, the pursuit of good design sort of predicated on a, 
um, an alignment of your own sort of values and spirit to the problem. So you want to give yourself to it and give yourself to the team. Um, then you need to be a certain type of character. Not not all projects warrant that. Admittedly, some of them are just <clears throat> very functional or um, straightforward. But um, we we try and engage in those ones that you can really um, hang your coat on. Um, and, and one of the chief reasons for that is you know our first sort of objective principle vision whatever you want to call it as a company is to be the highlight to be the highlight of your cv so you look back and say i had a great two three four years whatever there um very formative you know i worked with some amazing people did some very challenging things and and um if you're going to have that that experience you've got to do certain type of work and you need a certain type of person absolutely no it's it's a bold ambition to have an, an an admirable um which i think you know, at one level, obviously, it speaks to, I guess, uh, searching for people who have that real shared passion and enthusiasm for design. At another, I imagine there's also quite a practical imperative, particularly in the current climate that we are, about just being able to attract the kind of talent that you need to sustain an independent agency and to continue to do quality work. I mean, there is, you know, uh, ongoing question marks about the availability of talent and it is a global market for it in this area of experience-led design which i imagine you know having these kind of these bold ambitions and a willingness to support and help designers grow must stand you in good stead in just being able to make sure that you have you know resource available to be able to to grow as a business yeah i mean we 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 have um i think worked this out quite a long time ago i think but back when i was at oyster which became lbi digitas now i think is there was a period sort of early 2000s where you you're just surrounded by really good people who um and we've all had this moment in our career i'm not saying this is unique but you you have that period where you know you get up in the morning and you you, you're not going to work you're going to go and do some really fun stuff and it's really challenging and the people you're working with are are really good as as a design industry particularly around digital and experience designs matured um there's been some interesting challenges for that one we've seen the development of project development methodologies like agile which sort of necessitate closer working with um in-house teams in-house teams have matured a hell of a lot though i I started my career there and have never thought you know never perceived them to have been of any different quality Um, much deeper um engagement with the particular problem space they're working in um the challenge for in-house teams is getting the breadth uh, that we get in the consulting world so i can i can work in finance and i can see a, a, a problem space that's been solved in healthcare um, and i can leverage my experience there and apply it which is one of the key benefits of working multiple ter- multiple um, business verticals um so it, it, this this uh thing about trying to develop and bring the right people into the team is a continued challenge you know we that, that period when we were sort of forging um, the first and second versions of the web. We we're all fairly young without families. We've all got families and ob- obligations and other other aspirations and responsibilities. Um, so you can't work all hours anymore. You have to introduce an element of um, professionalism and, and consideration and work-life balance. So the whole maturation of the industry has it, it, been a, um, a development. Um, there's been a lot of... Um, M&A activity of management consultants buying strategic design capability in from you know very sizable acquisitions like Accenture Fjord down to down to smaller ones, um, 
that environment is, is a different place to practice design in an agency model. We're seeing um, more and more cohabitation. So the, the, the nest of the agency or consultancy culture um, has been challenged by having to have people work on site for long periods of time. Um, so the, the sort of DNA about what does the business stand for, what does my participation in this design cultural experiment mean, um, is is being challenged a hell of a lot. Um, design, by and large, in digital is being commoditized. Um, you can, you know, get a pretty decent website for, you know, seven or eight quid a month um, using Squarespace or things like that. Um, and the skill set, the the epicenter, the sort of cultural um, trajectory any business is on has become become more important than ever. Um, you know, you've got to you've got to be about something, and then you've got to be a. You know, I, I like to think that else is a participant in all the people who work with us, a participant in their career that accelerates them in a particular direction. You, know, you don't for one second think someone's going to stay with you forever. I, I, I hope people stay with us uh, a long time but only as long as they're they're passionate about what they're doing what we're doing the alignment of that and the and the sort of continued learning so and what does that ideal journey look like you know for if i were joining else today for instance as a, a new graduate um do, do you have aspirations about you know what that sort of development of skills development of exposure to different areas looks like as someone goes through that trajectory and it becomes someone who's able to contribute in a more valuable way to your business but also grows as an individual designer as well because i guess for a lot of agencies you know this is this is the key it's the ability to keep truly sharp unique minds working on these projects um so there is a a unique value that they can bring to to clients Mm. um yeah there's i I think um certainly a few years ago i would have said um you know you're creating your clients of the future um you're going to this is certainly through the sort of oyster lbi period and in the the ux team there was quite sizable at one stage and um we would talk about in the leadership team we would talk about um we're creating the future heads of digital in our client organizations because these people have come to us a certain age they're going to be here for three or four years they'll move around a couple of jobs unless they develop seniority they'll end up working in in these sort of um larger organizations you know bt or um any of the telcos or bbc and then that, that's that's happened so that was that's certainly true um it's a very small industry so always do good work and always be nice to people um it's, it's certainly certainly a first rule I'd, I'd live by um the other thing in terms of what does that learning path look like um we've recently rewritten uh, again how we how we how we manage development talent within else um We've been through the sort of, you know, softer, it's up to you kind of stuff. And we've been through the very objective-led um, cascade from business objectives through departments-led. It's all too formal and not 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 right for us. Um, we needed something more organic. So we, we, we look at talent development across two key, two, two axes, basically. So if you can imagine a, an Antsoft matrix, you know, the, the four quadrants, um, we have on one axis um, individual uh, contribution, um, and on the other axis we have cultural contribution. Um, and all we're asking is that people head up and right, so they get better as an individual, as a practitioner, and um, they stay abreast of their the industry. Um, 
they understand the overlaps of the disciplines and they understand their clients industry so they're well read um, well informed um, but they don't do that in isolation um, it's absolutely critical we've got cultural performance as part of that dna um, be an active participant in what we're trying to do um, share uh, participate do things <clears throat> we have um, a couple of things around how we structure our work if you if you only spend your time on client work you become defined by the client work that you've done um, so you know we've got that classic thing of carved off time where people have a facility to explore their own interests uh, and projects and there's no pressure for them to create something obviously we'd like them to to create some kind of content about what they've explored and made or some sort of prototype um but we've got people in the studio who've been playing with you know beacon grids or voice ui projects we haven't necessarily done so much of that client work we've done some voice ui work um but it's it's a uh, being an active participant in the culture is actually stepping forward and leaning into that and saying, okay, I've got all this time uh, on average per week. I'm going to make sure I use it because it's a gift. Um, we budget double the industry average for training and development. We, we just use the design business association figures for that. We take the average spend per head on training and we double it. And we say, you know, go to, go to the courses that you want to go to the conferences that you need to participate in the community, participate in else's growth, your growth, the team's growth, be inquisitive, lean into it, because the only way you're ever going to be perceived to be an expert business is by being expert in, in your people and being expert as a culture. And you don't do that by just working on the things that come to you. You've, you've, you've got to create that time to grow. So whatever level people come into us at, the journey is up and right individually better and culturally richer and so when you go on to your next role you should be a high performing individual anyway in terms of your skill and aptitude for creating compelling experiences but your participation in the environment in which you step into next should also be high um, because you know the importance of it now do you get a chance to participate in that yourself you know, as the person who has his name above the door and is responsible for the you know, ultimate running of the business. I mean, one of the things I've noticed in speaking to you know, quite a few people who are in the position of running agencies or founding agencies uh, is that you can spend you know, quite a lot of time, obviously, concentrating on the development of your team. Um, but sometimes it means that you end up not necessarily having the time yourself to be able to spend on those things uh, do you feel you're able in that environment to be able to carve out some time to um to practice similar principles with your own development um yeah absolutely i mean a hundred percent because um running else is a learning experience for me i mean you know you, you're you're a design practitioner who decides to give it a go and then suddenly you know there's there's 20 odd people working in your company and you find yourselves involved in renewing your insurance and real estate negotiations and HR issues and all kinds of things. Um, so th there is all that learning stuff, but that's not necessarily my um, passion area of, of developing. So participating in this sort of self project time, it is challenging. Um, but, it, but if I can't do it, um, what's the point in a way, you know, I, I didn't, start this to become really good at running a business of course we want to run a good business but 
you come under pressure from advisors all the time to grow the business and you know become attractive for buying and all those kinds of things but you know it's the number one thing for us is that we create an environment where everybody is on that pathway and on that journey because to me it's very simple if you have talented engaged active purposeful people design team project managers developers in your in your um, in your team a natural byproduct is good work a natural byproduct is a strong connective tissue between those individuals um, and and if you've got those things the work comes not not by itself but you've got something attractive there um, and it's it's the we're, we're ultimately selling a culture we're ultimately selling to our clients creativity and a uh, aptitude for um, being a guest in their culture while they go through a period of change and transformation um, which I, I also see as quite a privilege you know for the kinds of work that we get involved in we're a guest for that period um, and we've got some skills that can augment what they've what they've got and what they're doing and we can help accelerate other parts and we can shine light on unseen areas with other other skills that we have um, but this these are all soft human qualities i'm not talking about the hard skills of um making products i'm talking about all the kind of temperament uh uh attitudinal um emotive skill set um it's a character type that fits it's a character type that elicits insight from people that elicits collaboration from people um that that create the right conditions for good work to take place yeah let's let's talk a little bit about the the, the work itself because you know else has been able to work for a pretty diverse range of, of clients and some pretty high profile ones as well and i know you've done stuff like ubs and for shell and for adidas but then you've also done things for you know the likes of mgm and the rolling stones uh, as well which is you know quite a a broad spectrum to have had the chance to to work on and you know i'm wondering are there any particular projects which have stuck out as being particularly memorable to you personally, you know, ones where you have really felt that has been representative of your finest hour or your your worst hour. Oof, yeah. Not to uh, put you on the spot or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, th- there's a project that stands out that I'm I'm just really proud of that we've that we did that we were part of the solution that we created um, and the impact of it, um, which was um, a project called We Farm. Um, it is uh, effectively a peer-to-peer knowledge um, framework. It allows farmers in uh, developing countries, um, like Kenya, um, Tanzania, Peru, to share knowledge with each other. Um, they don't have the internet, um, so using uh, SMS, they can text a question to a local number and receive um, receive answers from their peers, um, which which helps them improve their um, their well-being, the money they make, the the product quality, um, because n- knowledge and best practice isn't disseminated uh, easily in, in those sorts of um, infrastructures and, and regions. Um, and how does something like that come about? Um, yeah, how, how does an agency in London end up working on something in you know Kenya and uh, in that part of the world? It's um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, we're, we're sort of just approaching our eighth year, and we still rely rely we still benefit hugely from the referral network from our former clients our former colleagues our um, 
uh, people who recommend us if you like um, and so that project was just something we were recommended for it's it's interesting because it's it's a very very difficult design challenge with almost none of the traditional design output um, we were looking at how how does someone with limited um, uh, capability in terms of uh, literacy um, let alone the device ask a question that that then gets absorbed in Swahili um, turned into English turned into Spanish shared with someone in Peru and then the return path is there and how does that system that deals with the same questions time and time again suddenly realize that it has knowledge um, it doesn't need to ask the question again because it's, it recognizes the the explicit and implicit themes within the question to give the answer those kinds of projects are typical of the ones we work on because it's not can you make us an x it's how do we create value in this person's life using this this approach or this this service but we don't know what it looks like um we we love those and i think you, it's very hard because you're you, you're trying to kind of i don't know if you were to market yourselves you'd say well we you know we, we live upstream of the brief and we help clients work out what the possibilities are but of course they need to be looking for the possibilities to know you exist to even ask you so it's a perennial kind of challenge for us to kind of stay in stay in people's peripheral vision in that regard so when these sorts of projects come up they, they get in contact but you rely hugely on on um being recommended and referred you know to go to all my earlier points of the network of people that you've worked with alongside and for if you engage with them and it's a good experience you you learn together you create something great and you um you challenge you challenge everything about what you're doing and why um that becomes memorable and you you get asked again um so the you know the best thing you can do is continue to do thoughtful considered challenging work and um uh you know hope the hope the referrals and the recommendations continue but there's no way to kind of grow the business you can't you can't design that outcome it's just a thing that kind of happens around you and um, what were the underpinnings of this particular projects it sounds to me like it, it had the potential as you say to be it's, it's quite a complex problem to solve albeit with quite lo-fi um outputs at the end of it but in yeah. particular because you're dealing with something which has got a really distributed diffused international aspect to it were you able to rely on direct contact with users and user research to inform the project there or did the geographical limitations make it difficult to do that yeah um well we did we did user research i mean the, the project came to us um through um a lady called nat hunter who, who used to be one of the um, founders of a company called airside <clears throat> um nat's brother was working on a proof of concept um with um uh, Cafe Producers Foundation. Uh, his sister uh, was on the exec there, um, CEO there. It was it was through a sort of s small network that we ended up working on it. We uh, actually to go back to sort of years and years ago when I first worked at Yell, one of my first jobs was to redesign the search engine and redesign the search logic and understand. Um, you know, this is this was '98, so quite a long time ago. Understand that when people search for a cinema, if they don't have one in the town they search for, the best way to expand it is is um, using a radius rather than expand from a town to a county. 
because if you expand from a town to a county, the nearest cinema might just be over the border. So this whole sort of logical approach to unpicking what happens when and looking at the flow of information and the storage of information and how that becomes mined afterwards um, what was kind of natural for, for us in the way we work. Um, so we, we, we broke the back of the kind of, I guess, the system architecture and logic design, if you like. Um, and then, yeah, classic in the field user research um, using a local number, human on the end, pretending to to be the computer, so to speak, um, reacting according to the script, uh, and then sort of fine-tuning the, the, the um, we call it a UI, but the experience based on based on what we were learning. Um, you had to register this for this thing over about four to seven screens, I think it was, four to seven text messages, and just, yeah, weed, weed out all the, all the complexity and um, try and look for shortcuts and improved ways of dealing with each of those exchanges so that was there's only one way to do that and that's to that's to get over there and do it literally in the field in the tea plantations in in uh, kenya well i can see this is one that you have a, a case study up on your website about so what i'll do is put a link in the show notes so that listeners can go and take a look and find out a bit more about the, the particular approach that you took with it because it does look like a well both a very interesting result and also a very interesting you know process that you went through to to get to that result um, but I wanted to ask you before we finish um, a little bit about the future, Warren, and, and what that looks like for you. Because you mentioned earlier about um, some of the acquisition activity which is going on, you know, some of these kind of macro challenges which lots of businesses are facing around uh, finding the right talent, nurturing the right talent. Now, you know, I, I know you um, at the moment, you know, remain an, an independent agency. Um, and you know, obviously, have some um, yeah, quite distinctive ideas about what that means for you as a, a business. But when you look to the future, what does that landscape look like at the moment? As you see other agencies of a similar size becoming part of these large professional services companies, uh, as you see you know different approaches to the way agencies structure themselves. Do, do you have a, a defined path in mind for what you think success looks like for else as a business over the next, say, you know, three to five years? First and foremost, you know, we are, we want to remain independent. We are fully engaged with this idea of building uh, a design consultancy that has enough time to learn its own way forward um, to create the right culture, a culture as we see fit to produce the best client work. Um, over time, I would like to see us produce more of our own products and services. There's, you know, natural output from this carved-off time is a load of products, uh, ideas that we want to take to market. But you know, you get busy, and it gets very challenging to to do that. Um, but I certainly see those as being being part of our our future. Um, over the last sort of, I guess, five to ten years, actually, go back about ten years. Or, quite interested in the idea that brand agencies held the kind of top table um, conversations when a client was launching a new business the first thing they'd say is all right well we need a brand for this thing um, and now they're considering you know the, the experience and our discipline whether it's service design um, all the flavors of digital experience design uh, digital products on whatever whatever uh, label you want to use um, is now a strategic imperative and where they're and involved, um, the the threat from the kind of management consulting M and A activity is that, and and software companies as well that have design capability or finance companies that do, 
um, is that they'll just roll out these capabilities for free for their clients with a view to creating future work. Um, but they'll still have the same challenges. They'll still, in order to be successful uh, in, in those pursuits, you need to have the right culture and the right team. And that, that to me is just fundamental. Whatever, however the business is, is, is funded or set up or structured, all of these design teams face the challenge of how do we attract the best talent? How do we create an environment that gets the best out of them um, and they get the best out of us? How do we create that symbiotic period so that the byproduct of that is 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 the excellent work, um, is, is meaningful work, is work that people have poured themselves into? That will be that will be a challenge ongoing. Um, but as I say this, you know, we're, we're fast approaching what, you know, people are calling the third rewrite of the web with um, decentralization um, that's, that's, you know, supposedly about to happen. Um, when that starts to gain momentum, business models will be, you know, refactored. Um, the way in which we interact with information, product services, identity, all these things, healthcare, insurance will be impacted. Uh, if we believe everything uh, that we're reading or hearing uh, and indeed seeing. Um, and so I don't think any of it's stable. Um, I think it always comes back to first principles that I, I quite often say I, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I mean, I'm on a continually, um, I'm continually learning. When I started, I didn't know how to code and design for for, for screen. I was a product designer. Um, but I always had to learn. I always had to learn the things I didn't understand. And, and this is all happening at such a huge scale again that as a business, we'll rely on first principles. If we've got creative, intelligent people, we can navigate this this change. We can navigate this stuff. And if we've got the right culture, we're very well set to um, to produce the goods and to create what's really important, the right relationships with our, with our clients. Um, we're definitely very much about the collaboration and that's a word that's thrown around a hell of a lot but the fact that most of our clients are referral the fact that we spend a long time with our clients um sort of two years at least um a lot of them there are one-off projects but a lot of our clients are very long term is testament to the fact that actually we step into the problem with them um and and do it alongside them so um all this change is going to come back to having the right culture having the right people um, and using the first principles of design, if you want to understand something, empathize with it, step into it, start creating hypotheses and test and learn your way forward. And those principles are what, what our future is. And Well, as you say, you know, that strong grounding in those first principles, it perhaps gives a business the the, the the basic sort of courage it needs to be experimental, to continue to learn, to continue to reinvent and, and therefore survive. I mean, there's something which you said to me, I think, when we first met, which has kind of stuck with me. Um, i possibly paraphrasing here, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of, yeah, maybe if my company still exists in 10 years time, we haven't actually been experimental enough. And I never really took that to mean that you had intentions of you know running your business into the the ground and disappearing within ten years. More the sense that actually, um, you know, you need to have the courage to continue to challenge what your business means, how you work, who you work with, you know, what mm. sort of technologies you embrace. Otherwise, 
you will not exist in 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 ten years' time. It's uh, I yeah. guess that that ability to dare yourself to go a little bit further um, and push yourself outside your comfort zone, where having that strong grounding in the basic principles yeah. helps to to keep that on track. Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's I think it's the um, it's it's not the pursuit of you know self combusting <laughs> that, that that's the point. Um, it's the it's the jeopardy. It's it's the flying close to the wind. It's taking yourself to a point where um, you know, are you taking enough? Are you taking enough risks? And are you probing enough areas to ask yourself some very serious questions? I think it'd be very easy to sort of settle into um, becoming, uh, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way at all, but becoming a, uh, a sort of standard digital design and build company. It'd be very easy for us to do that. We've got you know high grade interaction design skills very good product design team so we, we could we could do that but the jeopardy by trying to punch up into the sort of management consulting space and the business transformation space and staff engagement and organizational design all these areas that our work touches we challenge ourselves and we find out where our edges are and we evolve as a consequence so um we're not shy of those conversations you know it's 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 uh it's good to say well, if we're going to design this thing um, and we're going to make this, this is going to have an organizational design impact and this is going to require new skills and processes and procedures, um, which you don't have. And we need to get someone in to work with us on this. Um, as a business, we're, we're very happy to identify those things because they, je- they, je- they jeopardize what we're doing by pointing them out. You could be perceived to be awkward to work with or difficult or those things or realistic. And then if we're going to get this away, we can design you a beautiful X, Y, Z that will allow people to do, you know, these things. But there's a behavioral change element that goes with the organization in order to sufficiently run this thing. And there's a behavioral change element that goes with the audience it's targeted at to adopt this thing. And those skill sets are, you know, they sit in the sort of management consulting space, um, organizational design space. And I love, I love probing into those areas and, and seeing how far does our permission go how far is our participation allowed um, because as designers we have the school the skill sets to bring all those people to the, the table to use um, transparency and um, open creation working together to to build alignment and build momentum there's a common common vocabulary around sketches and designs and prototypes you can put your hands on them and talk them through regardless of what you're viewpoint is from from a business perspective so we've got something as an industry that's super super valuable um and i think you know we shouldn't be apologetic about moving our skill sets into those conversations where they'd benefit right there was one last thing that i did want to to ask you while we're talking um i see in else's portfolio that uh, you have done work for the rolling stones now i'm curious how does that come about how does how does else london end up working on a project with the rolling stones oh i really should make up a, a really compelling story here shouldn't i um i i I'm left... sort of hoping it involves you know wild nights out and uh, you know yeah, the whole thing so getting a bit crazy down in the south of france one day i was um i worked at universal music and um it, it's it's interesting from a design business standpoint i think you know i, I was brought into universal music because the problem they faced was um all of the catalog was being consumed and sold through amazon itunes and supermarkets so the question was how do we create a direct to consumer relationship how do we get people to buy direct from us because if we don't 
iTunes are going to be telling us what our catalogue should be. Not only that, we've got a historical back catalogue of music that people need to engage with. Um, historical artists like uh, Bob Marley and Nick Drake, um, whoever. So that's why I went there. Uh, and one of the projects amongst some very kind of um, pithy, low-level um, boy and girl band stuff that we did, um, we got to we got to build um, artist sites and e-commerce offers and all those kinds of things and social media campaigns for all these different artists. One of them was Rolling Stones. It was the relaunch of um, the re-release, sorry, of Exile on Main Street. And the sort of traditional approach was, well, we're re-releasing this. Let's create a website that just sort of sells the album. Uh, which seemed like a bit of an injustice to me because experientially uh, there's more to engage with. The way that album was created uh, was on the back of the stones facing huge fines, possible imprisonment for uh, tax tax avoidance effectively. So they fled the country, went down to the South France and they wrote this album. And they're at the height of their powers really at that point. Um, really interesting story. That's what you're selling when you, when you re-release that album. Um, it's the narrative that goes around how that album came to be. Um, and what's really compelling to me is that as a sort of, you know, um, 14, 15 year old growing up in the UK, there's an art artifact there, whether it's a, a Dylan album or a Stones album or a Bowie album or um, Public Enemy, whatever, whatever. There are these things that sit there that are waiting for you to discover them. And so we saw it as our job to bring people's attention to it using the, the story that was the creation of Exile on Main Street and Jimmy Miller and all those things. And I, I just got fully immersed in that and um, was able to go to the Stones archive um, and wander through this uh, storage facility that's got all the originals, um, all the original um, master recordings and costumes and guitars and drums and trophies. Wow, what a great way to get inspiration for a project. It was it was incredible and a real, and a real privilege. And, you know, I got to meet a few of the bands um, and what was interesting was um sir michael um jagger was really he was really into and he's always been the, the sort of um the one in the stones business if you like who's interested in the brand and design in in its sort of biggest sense um he was really interested in what we we're trying to do so he asked us to go to his house in london to talk him through it which was you know very bizarre situation you're in Mick Jagger's front room and he's pouring you a cup of tea um the guy I went with at the time Andy Moore um when we came out we said that was really strange um uh, he, he said that he does a really good impression of Mick Jagger that you, you know that you think because it's like you're watching a caricature it, but it's actually him there's bizarre bizarre moment but um shortly after that uh the universal thing stopped and um else was started and um Mick was about to release uh, um, another album and so his manager basically got in contact and said would you like to can you help us do um, Mick's uh, site again and he was our first client actually <laughs> so um, and that's 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 true yeah Mick Jagger was our was our first client and we did some work for his um, his then girlfriend as well um i mean so, so yeah not a bad anchor client to start with no no it was uh certainly helped you know open some doors in those early days when we were trying to trying to get some sort of more serious work um <laughs> but well, i uh, think you, yeah. you may also have the answer to you know this ongoing challenge facing various agencies in terms of attracting good talent you just need to promise people that you know <laughs> yeah. a, a day in the life at else could be going and sitting and having a cup of tea with mick jagger as you talk about his next digital project yeah yeah 
Well, look, Warren, thank you very much for taking the time um, to chat on the podcast today. I know you've taken time out of your holiday to um, remote in to, to do this. So very yeah, much no appreciate you doing it. And, um, you know, do keep in touch and let us know how it's going with Else. And uh, it will be very interesting to follow the story. Yeah. OK, cool. Well, thanks very much for, for your time and asking us to do it. Yeah, it's good. Thanks a lot. So that's it for this edition, but I will be back with a new show in two weeks' time when I'm talking to Massimo Mercuri, the Director of Innovation, client-side this time, for Axo Noble, a 300-year-old paint and materials company that's trying to ignite some pretty radical digital ideas among a 40,000-strong workforce around the world. But in the meantime... Don't forget to check out those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com. You'll find links there to that upcoming Mext dinner on the 25th of April in London, the Mext jobs board, uh, and of course, all of the various references that Warren and I mentioned during our chat. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.